Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I'm your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of the queer vampire cycle as recommended by Terry Menard of Gaily Dreadful, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about the 1985 original Fright Night. And before we get into that, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. This is the 200th, um, well, numbered episode. I have done other side episodes, um, yearly recaps, follow up with people after a certain episode, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of numbers, I guess this is the 200th episode. So um, congratulations to me. Uh, uh, that sounds selfish. Um, and thank you to all my listeners who have um, stuck with me over the years. Um, that's assuming that there are some people who have been listening since I launched this podcast in 2014, 2015, however long ago it was. Um, I'm certainly thankful to have you as regulars, and thank you to any new, relatively new listeners, whether this is your first episode that you're checking out with me, or whether it's just been uh, a couple weeks, or a couple months, or a year, whatever. Um, This is my 200th episode, so I was trying to plan something special, and by trying to plan something special, I mean I thought about it for a few minutes, and then kind of forgot, and just got busy with life, so I didn't have anything um, exciting or um, necessarily monumental that I was going to do for this, but it's 200, so... um, Hooray, balloons, streamers, um, thank you to everyone for um, sustaining me, uh, I guess, emotionally and creatively um, throughout the time that it is uh, taking me to get to 200 episodes. So, um, And another uh, little thing that I'll preface before I get into the episode is um, I am, I identify as, and always have identified as a, um, a straight, cisgendered um, man. And so... Talking to Terry was a wonderful experience in, in regards to getting some insight and being edified on a different perspective and, and a different life experience, viewing the same things that I w- would view, but what you know, but what a person takes away differently. And so I am, I guess, my approach to Fright Night and these films that I'm covering for the month of August are going to be: um, what would it be like watching this movie from the perspective of someone who isn't? me, basically, um, what is it like to watch these films through new eyes? Um, maybe that is arrogant, um, or maybe that is sort of a, a, a standard, you know, maybe that's a quintessential straight white guy thing to do, but I am trying to approach these movies through the lens of someone whose experience is not uh, mine, has not been mine. Um, and so because of that, I'm sure that I'm... I'm sure that I'm going to get it wrong sometimes, that I'm going to make some presumptions, I'm sure, that I'm going to um, screw up and stumble a little bit uh, because I am trying to understand an experience which is not my experience. So to those who don't identify as uh, straight or cisgender, to those who... um, 
saw this movie um, from the uh, experience or from the perspective of the one that I'm trying to understand, I preemptively want to say thank you for your patience with me as I try to uh, basically, you know, see see art from a, from a, from a different side of life, basically. Um, and hopefully, none, no one holds any anything that I say against me um, because uh, I'm. I'm I'm a flawed individual, and I'm uh, I'm going to always be flawed, but I'm always going to to be trying. Uh, and so, having said that, let's get into the discussion of Fright Night, which was absolutely delightfully campy. Um, it's funny how I, I've I've kind of struggled with camp um, in my life in the sense of I. I Camp, if done, uh, if overdone, I guess you could say, kind of starts getting into the the territory of people saying it's so bad it's good, which I don't really adhere to. Um, I tend to be more of a, no, it's so bad that it's bad. Um, And so camp is a weird middle ground or gray area for that where um, someone could be trying to make a serious movie, but it's um, kind of goofy, and, and I have trouble reconciling those two things sometimes. I must admit that. Um, you know, horror comedy is one thing, but camp is a, is, is different, because I think if, um, if done wrong, it's really wrong. Um, and yet if done right, it's sort of, it's, 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 I'm, I'm not sure how to differentiate camp from horror comedy. Maybe they're the same thing, or maybe there's just a whole lot of overlap in, in the Venn diagram. Um, but this one I found just a lot of fun, and um, I, I remember having uh, when I was talking with Terry about uh, this theme and just this idea of a lot of these movies coming out of uh, Reagan's America, and you know how a lot of movies at that time were were sort of wish fulfillment or escapism or mainstream movies. I guess I guess I could say there, there was just this general attitude of the mainstream American public of um, we want to feel good, we want to you know, um, celebrate how awesome uh, we are and how awesome life is and all that kind of stuff. So you get a lot of these, uh, you know, cheesy shoot 'em up action movies, which are, are kind of shallow, but um, have a lot of visceral entertainment and a lot of kind of, um, you know, superficial value to them. Um, and yet I, I, I always want to be the, the kind of person that thinks like horror is different, though. Horror is trying to be subversive or transgressive. Horror is going to be the, the dark, you know, the dark underbelly of this, and it's never going to be about escapism and that sort of thing. And yet, um, what's wrong with that, I think, is the is the question that I ultimately started asking myself. Like, what's wrong with just trying to have fun? What's wrong with a, a horror movie also just trying to be about um, um, fun and, and escapism and, and just trying to, uh, to not, uh, to indulge in this idea of life is you know, ostensibly really good, and, and America is wonderful, and let's let's uh, delight in in this, uh, even if it's if it's sort of a, an illusion. Like let's delight and indulge in in this idea of um, how how wonderful life is, or how fun things can be. Um, it's not necessarily inherently contradicting to be campy and to be fun, and also at the same time to be transgressive. Um, and so I just found that this was a, a lot of fun. I mean, Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent, who, of course, is named after, uh, you know, the combining Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, you get Peter Vincent. Um, the, you know, the, the character of Evil Ed, who's kind of playing things really 
obnoxiously over the top. It seemed like there was always kind of a sidekick character that was doing that, that was, that was either kind of you had a lot of fun with or was really getting on your nerves the entire time. Um, and also Chris Sarandon as Dangerage, as the vampire, as this charismatic um, somewhat kind of flamboyant character uh, was a lot of fun. Um, and I just kind of found myself um, laughing and having a good time with this movie um, and just kind of appreciating um, how those two things can can live together, how something can be a fun, entertaining joyride, but also kind of gnarly. The practical effects in this movie are really, really cool, um, which I didn't <laughs> I didn't expect. Maybe that was that was my bad. I, I, I know Tom Holland is a, is a horror veteran. I must admit I, I'm not intimately familiar with a lot of his stuff. I've actually never seen a child's play movie from beginning to end. But um, it was it was great. It was sort of everything that you would expect from an 80s movie, from the um, absurd fashion choices to just the, you know, the, the obliviousness of suburbia as like a subtext to um, just the carefree and, and, and you know, uh, oblivious characters that are in, in, indulging in, in this world. And then um, also, as is the case with a lot of horror franchises that rose to promise in the 80s, you have a, a really interesting villain who uh, you want to see succeed more than you want to see the main characters succeed. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, I know Terry and I talked, uh, uh, had a conversation about, uh, or, or part of our conversation was about what is, what, where do you, where, where is the, not where, I guess, but um, director intent versus audience interpretation, what is the most important part? And we both settled on the idea of audience interpretation. And when it came to doing a little bit of research on Fright Night, I found that it's this is sort of a, a, a six of one, half a dozen of the other situation, um, because uh, I have on in the IMDb trivia, and I've tried to um, corroborate this, and I haven't been able to find it. Um, but uh, there's an IMDb trivia bit where Tom Holland says, uh, you could say Evil Ed is the gay kid who was bullied, uh, but I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking he's the kid who reads all those EC comic books. Um, but he, when commenting on the implied gay relationship between Jerry and Billy, he said, the stuff with Chris Sarandon and Jonathan Stark, that's me. So Terry talked about you know Chris Sarandon as, as uh, Dangeridge being this uh, queer-coded character and how the subtext... Um, when it comes to a you know um, a, a reading of this film or an interpretation of this film from a, a queer context, is you have your your main character who is uh, trying to get with his girlfriend and is distracted by this man who moves in next door and he's kind of unable to get past this. Um, you know he becomes obsessed with this man and there's a strange relationship there with a lot of um, direct eye contact and it's not until he vanquishes his obsession with this man that he is able to fully engage in a physical relationship with his um, doting, innocent girlfriend. Um, and so certainly you have Tom Holland here admitting that that was intentional. And now I should say IMDb attributes that quote to a, an interview or a segment that he had with Dread Central. And I did a bunch of Googling. I found some interviews that they, did, that they did with him. I couldn't find anything in text. Perhaps it's a podcast interview he did. And so there's not a kind of a, a searchable, physical, tangible um, way to corroborate that. But it, certainly if anyone has seen an interview or heard an interview with Tom Holland where he says that, please send it my way because I certainly want to um, uh, listen to it or, or at least take part in it. And I guess why I, I, I mentioned that uh, this soundbite specifically is 
um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it muddled things for me, but um, it, it did sort of, well, no, I, I guess it did sort of uh, muddle this idea of, of director intention, which I, I know, I know, I know, I shouldn't be going down that path because it's the, it's the, what the audience takes away, which is the most important thing, but I was kind of hoping to get some clarity as to what Holland um, was intending to do because interpreting this film, not just from my perspective, but I think if I was a, a queer person watching this movie, my takeaway is um, not, not I don't want to say it's not encouraging, but if speaking to sort of attitudes um, towards... Um, the gay demographic in America at the time, it seems like it, there's there's a, a kind of a negative um, implication um, behind how people are seeing them because um, it is very interesting to think of um, our main character, uh, Charlie, who kind of has a bit of an awakening when he sees Jerry Dandridge, this guy who is a who has some uh, fashion which really makes him stand out from the neighborhood, who um, has a live-in gardener, um, who, uh, and who also has, um, is, is quite charismatic and quite charming and seems to also have quite a fixation on Charlie. There seems to be something there in the film which speaks to this idea of a sexual awakening, and Charlie realizing there are feelings there that he did not know were there or maybe that he was not aware of, but this idea of, of recognizing who you are really um, and who you have been pretending to be. We see that too in the evil Ed character. You know, Tom Holland says like, you know, he can understand that Charlie or, or that evil Ed is the, is the bully gay character. Um, and this idea of, you know, he doesn't want to be called evil Ed. And, and, and there's kind of a, a, a re not repentance. What's the word I'm looking for? A resentment towards Charlie. Um, and that scene, I have to say, that scene when Dangeridge transforms him is so touching. Um, and, and I was prepared for it to be that way, but I wasn't prepared for how touching it was when Ed has tears in his eyes and he's named, he is named by this character and called Edward. His identity is validated by this guy. And he's saying, you won't hurt anymore. All you have to do is take my hand. And it's important to note that is the only bite in the entire movie in which the victim gives of himself willingly to this character. And he has becomes a different person after he does. And so there's that idea of embracing identity. But then on the other hand, you have Charlie who, if his journey is one of sexual awakening and realizing what is really inside with him, uh, of him and who he really is... His journey seems to be more of, it seems like someone who is self-loathing or who hates what's inside of him or hates what this man has done um, to him, has a, what, what this man has awoken inside of him, of someone who is trying to repress his identity because of how immediately and strongly he opposes this man, this man in his neighborhood, this man who um, has charmed his his uh, his mother, and um, who will ultimately charm his girlfriend. This is this is something he wants to eliminate from his life, and it's um, it's right away. He immediately believes this guy is a vampire. He calls the cops. He wants this guy out, and that seems to indicate this idea of like, yes, you have done something to me, and I want to expel it from my life. Not just that, but if we also look to 
the 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 town's response to uh, Dangeridge, or even the film's response to Dangeridge, or, or how the film, or what the film thinks of him, then if we kind of accept that, um, and you may not be willing to accept that, and 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 that's fine, I suppose. But once again, uh, keep in mind the pr- the perspective that I'm trying to come at um, this with, and the fact that I'm. Uh, as discussed, one of the guys that believes in, in uh, interpretation over intention. Um, if we kind of um, accept or believe that, um, you know, vampirism can be can be thought of as this idea of sexual transmission or infection or something like that, then Dangeridge being a vampire, Dangeridge biting people is is seen as obviously bad as evil, and in a you know also he's kind of a sexual deviant, um, you know his his. What he brings out of people, what he tries to give to people, is seen as evil, is seen as corrupting, is seen as something that has to be wiped out from the earth, quite literally. And yet, um, at the same time, he is so much more interesting than any of the characters in this movie. I mean, Peter Vincent has um, kind of that little throwaway line when, uh, you know, when talking to Charlie about why he got fired, that... You know, people are more interested in watching men in hockey masks kill young teenagers, and which is clearly an, uh, you know, a reference to Jason in Friday the Thirteenth. But what he says is also true in the sense of this is one of the reasons Roger Ebert criticized the the Friday the Thirteenth franchise and, and franchises like it is just um, the victims are nameless, are just fodder for a killer to come along and kill them in um, many colorful ways and. People love Jason Voorhees. People love Freddy Krueger. People love Michael Myers. They don't necessarily love the people that are that those characters are killing. They just want to see the villain. And so uh, this film obviously uh, is very interested in Dangeridge as the villain. I mean, he's not just Michael Myers or he's not just Jason Voorhees where he shows up at certain times when... You know, and, and, and chases people down dark alleys and doesn't say anything and doesn't have a backstory. We spend time with him away from our main characters. We learn more about him. We learn that he is after um, Amy because of how she physically resembles someone from his past. There is, if not an explicit backstory, there is depth to him as a character. We learn about him separately from charlie's journey basically the film is interested in him and yet the film also says this man this thing needs to be eradicated and so that's that's why i kind of think that this movie is almost kind of coming from charlie's perspective or if we look at charlie's perspective it's it's kind of a film about a, a a guy who recognizes or is made aware of feelings that he has inside of him but wants to repress them and doesn't want to indulge in them and, and, and sort of is kind of he's he loads himself or he loads what is inside of him because it is seen as disgusting or corrupting or not acceptable um i mean when when dangerage first moves in uh, next door and, and charlie's mom sees him and she says something to the effect of you know knowing my luck he's probably gay um, which she kind of mourns for the fact that, like, well, he can't, he's not going to date me, but also there's, there's kind of a, a tone there in the sense of, like, ugh, a gay guy. Like, this, is, this doesn't help me at all. This is not beneficial in any way, shape, or form, basically. Um, and, and, so, and then, of course, they go through this whole journey, obviously, and, and, there's, and people are 
killed and then Danger just killed and Amy is saved and there's all this kind of stuff and the, there's a, a scene at the very end when when uh, when Charlie is with his girlfriend and he's finally able to consummate the relationship and yet the camera moves over to um, the house next door where Dandridge used to dwell and there's still kind of a fear and then there's those glowing eyes and we have and we close on the voice of evil Ed um, saying like oh you're so cool Brewster and what that seems to indicate to me is this idea of whatever was awoken in Charlie that whether you want to call it fear whether you want to call it desire whether you want to call it awareness uh, that hasn't gone away just because he went through this journey, just because this vampire has been vanquished, just because this um, foe and this evil, quote-unquote, has, be, has, has become or has been overcome. And just because he's able to, you know, have sex with his girlfriend doesn't mean that those feelings have gone away. You know, just this idea of like, you know, we're going to be we're going to be battling with a vampire for the, you know, for all eternity, for, you know, the rest of our lives um, is also kind of this idea of he's going to be dealing with these feelings for the rest of his life too, just because um, physically that person is not there anymore, just because physically the man who has awoken these feelings inside of him isn't there anymore, doesn't mean that his feelings have gone. And he hates those feelings. He doesn't want those feelings to be there. He maybe recognized that feeling or those feelings in Evil Ed, or, or that he recognized that Evil Ed had them, and that's kind of why he spoke down to Evil Ed. That's why Evil Ed was kind of his, his peon in a way, and that's why Evil Ed was so willing to give himself to Dandridge. That's why he was so willing to, to take his hand, you know? <laughs> Once again, it's such a touching scene, um, just seeing this guy who's very over the top and, and kind of, you know, seems to use humor and sarcasm as a defense mechanism because he's he hates what people think of him or maybe he hates himself too because of what society has thought of him. He sees a guy here in front of him and saying, I know what it's like to be an outsider. No one will ever make fun of you anymore. You won't feel any pain. Just take my hand. And he does and he gives it willingly. And that is so touching and kind of beautiful. And yet it's still within the context of a film that wants to see, or once again, within the context of a main character in Charlie that wants to see this man eradicated. Um, now, where it becomes a bit troublesome for me is I, I recognize that at the time, Amanda Bierce, when she was making this movie, was I think 25? She was, she was definitely not the, the um, high school age that the movie portrayed her to be. And yet at the same time, she is taken advantage of by this vampire. She's put under a trance. She is seduced. She is hypnotized. And she is ultimately bitten and penetrated by this vampire. Um, and that's where I have some trouble with this movie and the message that this movie is giving us because Dandridge is clearly charismatic. Dandridge is clearly a much more interesting character than Charlie or Evil Ed or even Amy. Um, maybe not more interesting than uh, Peter Vincent, but, you know, Dracula has to have Van Helsing, you know, to kind of counterbalance him. Um, and, and, and yet uh, what we have is this interesting charismatic character who's also taking advantage of a child and not even really implied, like quite explicitly. And so once again, there is this, this message from the film that um, this character, this queer-coded character, is a corrupter of youth is is you know coming after your children and th and that's where i think the messaging 
does get a little muddled for me, and that's why I kind of was hoping to find something from Tom Holland to explain his intentions. And now, maybe it's just a situation of Tom Holland was making a movie or the actors were interpreting that script in such a way where it's like, yes, this is what we think, but also this is at the same time what America believes, and that sucks. But that's also just kind of how it is. Um, But I, I don't know. Once again, it'd be different if there was you know, word or rumor that Dandridge had bitten Amy, but he, he, he does quite explicitly seduce her. He does quite explicitly grope her, um, on the dance floor. And, and I suppose maybe there's an argument to be made that this is Charlie seeing him do that. So maybe that's, that's, uh, tainted or a skewed perspective from Charlie, this guy who once again hates this individual, hates what this individual has brought up in him. And so maybe it's a it's a skewed or warped perspective or, or, or view of what this guy is doing. I suppose there's an argument to be made there, but once again, it, it's still just like it, it is... There are scenes where we are away from Charlie. When, when, when Dandridge is seducing Amy, you know, kind of, I think it's in front of a fireplace... Um, Charlie is not there, so we can't rely on that as an explanation, that it's through Charlie's point of view or that um, this is his belief. This is quite explicitly what is happening. So once again, we have this, um, and I hate to to kind of keep going back to the same point, but we have this um, queer-coded character who is very charismatic, who is a lot more interesting um, and if you are um, you know, a, an LGBTQIA viewer watching this, you're kind of thinking like, I don't want to presume what you are thinking, but maybe there's this perspective there's this perspective or this idea of like, well, cool, there was Jason, there was Freddy Krueger, there was Michael Myers, and now here's here's someone that here's the villain for me in the sense of like, yeah, kill all these nameless, obnoxious teenagers. Here's 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 a a villain for for someone like me. And yet that film also has that villain be really, really creepy. And I don't know how to to uh, reconcile um, those two things, and so that's why you know I probably shouldn't have been seeking out, but that's why I was kind of hoping to to kind of get some clarity from Tom Holland. Maybe there was something that he was um, intending to to say with it, or you know, it, it could just be a a, a, um, a a situation in which um, you have a writer director who is trying to say something and just. Uh, didn't express it very clearly, um, or maybe I'm um, reading too deep into it, uh, but that's kind of what I like doing when it comes to uh, to these movies. So, yeah, um, a lot of fun. I, I think um, had some really awesome practical effects. When when Evil Ed as like werewolf Evil Ed is dying, once again a surprisingly touching scene when he's crying and he's trying to kind of pull the I think it's a table leg or or the um you know uh one of the pieces from the banister when he's trying to pull it out of himself and he's crying and Peter Vincent is crying and kind of like reaching for him um it's it's touching and and you know the the subtext there is sort of like you know we we did this to you 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 got to this point you turned into this creature because of how we mistreated you and kind of um we've we've done we've done this to you that's what i read into at least but once again a really really kind of touching scene uh when um jonathan stark's character uh billy is is uh is is destroyed and just kind of 
very grossly and slowly kind of melts and decomposes on the stairs and falls over. That's that's awesome. When uh, Dangerage erupts in flames and melts and explodes in, in the basement, all of it is so fucking cool. Um, I, I was I was kind of caught off guard because I know it was kind of a low budget film, but man, did they did they stretch their budget and did they get some real awesomeness out of it? And I, and I think there's something like a, a, a maybe ten percent of their budget was uh, just put to the practical effects in here, and, and man, does it pay off? But um, yeah, um, a lot of fun, uh, kind of problematic, and and, uh, and, and maybe maybe a a depiction of. Um, someone who is recognizing feelings inside of himself that society deems inappropriate. And so he, he's, he's acting against that. Maybe that's the metaphor. Maybe there is no clear metaphor, or maybe you think that there's a, a different metaphor. Either way, I want to hear from you. Um, it's always easy enough to get in touch with me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. I should, of course, mention the um, availability of Fright Night. It's pretty much everywhere if you want to watch it or rewatch it um, or you know see it from a different perspective or whatever. Um, rental or purchase on... <gasps> Amazon, Fandango Now, Vudu, Redbox, uh, DirecTV, Apple TV, Google Play, YouTube, and the Microsoft Store um, are all places that you can get your hands on this movie um, for the first time, for the second time, or um, you know maybe for the the sixth or tenth time. But um, catch up with um, uh, back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at BattleshipRetention.com and finding I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop down menu um, or just go directly to the source at IDoMoviesBadly.Podbean.com if you uh, don't do either of those things and you go through um, Apple iTunes Google Podcasts Stitcher anything um, feel free to uh, to leave me a rating leave me a comment um, I haven't mentioned that in a long time, but I also kind of realized that how many people are going like directly to the website. Most people are probably listening to this stuff on their phone um, while they're working, while they're working out. If you are still commuting, maybe doing that. Uh, so if you do that, please do uh, please do uh, leave me a comment because I realize that um, algorithms like uh, recommending things based on people recommending things. So if you could rate me, recommend some stuff, uh, or recommend me to some stuff or whatever uh just listen um spread the word about id movies badly uh because i have done 200 episodes and um if all goes well i'll be doing uh 200 um more episodes um but yeah so that's it for um fright night be sure to tune in next week where i'll be covering uh joel schumacher's the lost boys and where hopefully i will be just a little bit less ignorant This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 